Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our March-April 2019 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Agitation and aggression are some of the most common and disturbing behavioral symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, occurring in about one-quarter to one-half of patients. Medications for agitation and aggression are only modestly effective, and those agents that have demonstrated efficacy, such as antipsychotics, are often associated with serious side effects, including an increased risk of stroke and death. Researchers, clinicians, and the general public have increased their interest regarding the use of cannabinoids for Alzheimer's disease, since they have been shown to reduce anxiety and aggression in other patient populations. However, evidence is inconsistent, and research so far has been unable to confirm whether cannabinoids are effective and safe for the treatment of agitation in Alzheimer's disease. To date, there have only been six studies that have investigated the use of natural or synthetic cannabinoids to treat agitation in Alzheimer's patients. In the present review, the authors conducted a meta-analysis with these six studies to determine whether cannabinoids did improve agitation for this population. Their investigation ultimately showed that cannabinoids did not improve agitation. However, synthetic cannabinoids such as nabilone and dronabinol demonstrated greater improvements on agitation than tetrahydrocannabinol or THC. With regard to side effects, treatment with cannabinoids was associated with an increased risk of sedation. Overall, the evidence regarding the use of cannabinoids for the treatment of agitation and Alzheimer's disease remains inconclusive. And while there may be some benefit of synthetic cannabinoids on agitation, the authors conclude that further investigation in larger and more rigorous trials is warranted. While crimes committed by people with mental illness receive considerable media attention, there is a lack of research examining criminal involvement among people with mental illness in the general population. In this study, funded by the National Institutes of Health, Researchers at Yale School of Medicine examined self-reported crime, incarceration, and legal problems among people with mental illness in a nationally representative sample of 36,309 non-incarcerated U.S. adults. The rates of criminal involvement reported were considerable. More than one in four people reported committing crime as an adult, and around one in ten reported having been incarcerated. A total of 1.8% of adults reported current legal problems, 2.7% reported drug-related legal problems, and 0.8% reported alcohol-related legal problems. People with mental illness reported crime, incarceration, and legal problems at a rate of four to five times that of people without mental illness. People with substance use disorders or co-occurring substance and mental health disorders were especially at risk. Rates of crime, incarceration, and legal problems were 3 to 23 times that of people without substance use disorders. Adults with more than one disorder reported more crime than those with a single disorder. 
Post-traumatic stress disorder and bipolar 1 disorder contributed to increased risk of crime and incarceration, even when accounting for co-occurring substance use. U.S. adults with substance use and co-occurring disorders are at risk of justice system involvement. Preventive measures such as increased access to mental health and substance use treatment and targeting risky behavior among people with mental illness may reduce criminal involvement in the United States. Appropriate treatment of schizophrenia can improve and stabilize symptoms, but patients are frequently non-adherent to treatment, and relapse, which may result in disease progression, is common. In a study funded by Allegan and Gideon Richter, researchers investigated the ability of cariprazine, a second-generation antipsychotic, to sustain long-term remission in patients with schizophrenia. The study consisted of post-hoc analyses of data from a relapse prevention trial. Sustained remission was defined as having symptoms that were categorized as mild or better for various time frames. The data were drawn from patients who were stabilized on cariprazine doses of 3 to 9 milligrams per day. They were then randomized to either continue cariprazine or be switched to placebo for up to 72 weeks of double-blind treatment. Patients who continued cariprazine had significantly better rates of sustained remission than patients who were switched to placebo regardless of the time frame used to define remission. According to the authors, these results suggest that cariprazine may be beneficial in helping patients sustain remission for extended periods of time, which may slow the worsening of the disease and improve symptomatic and functional outcomes. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Prescriptions for sedative hypnotics are routinely prescribed to treat insomnia, despite evidence indicating that non-pharmacologic treatments are more favorable over time. In 2013, the FDA issued a safety warning regarding zolpidem use. However, the use of zolpidem at high doses and for long periods continues to occur. A Veterans Health Administration-sponsored study that used data from January 2013 to June 2014 found that about 40% of women who began taking Zolpidem used doses higher than the recommended dose of 5 milligrams per day within 180 days of initiating the medication. In addition, for both men and women, about 1 in 5 veterans are chronic Zolpidem users defined as continuing use for at least 180 days. Prior year use of other sleep-inducing medications, including quetiapine, benzodiazepines, and other sedative hypnotics, was associated with both high-dose use in women and chronic use overall. Substance abuse or dependence was associated with high-dose use in women, and those with a psychiatric or sleep disorder diagnosis were more likely to use long-term. Despite evidence supporting non-pharmacologic treatments as comparable and more favorable alternatives, there is a shortage of providers of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Continued efforts in this area will be needed, especially for subpopulations at greater risk of high-dose and chronic use. 
Such efforts can include educating providers about the recommended zolpidem dose for women, as well as the potential dangers of high dose and chronic use of this medication. In this post-hoc analysis of the Bridge to Mix study, a multicenter cross-sectional study sponsored by Sanofi Aventis, the authors sought to establish the frequency and characteristics of depressive mixed states. They evaluated effective liability as a possible clinical feature of mixed depression and assessed its relationship with atypical depressive features, particularly mood reactivity. Clinical features of patients presenting with a major depressive episode with or without affective liability and with or without mood reactivity were compared, and the clinical constructs of each feature were differentiated. Affective liability was positively associated with mixed depression and with bipolar 1 and 2 disorders, but was negatively associated with unipolar depression. In the logistic regression, mood reactivity was the variable most significantly associated with affective liability and vice versa. The association did not violate the assumption of independence, and the two clinical features are therefore unlikely to be considered as two overlapping symptoms. Additionally, different clinical characteristics predicted affective liability and mood reactivity. In particular, affective liability was positively correlated to the severity of mania and negatively correlated with severity of depression. Mood reactivity was better predicted by atypical symptoms such as hyperphasia, hypersomnia, and leaden paralysis and correlated with comorbid anxiety disorders. As a consequence, mixed and atypical depression may lie on the same continuum for which the underlying matrix is represented by mood reactivity and affective liability possibly bridging the gap between mixed and atypical depression. Suicide is a major public health concern. It has been estimated that half of all suicides occur among people who have previously been admitted to psychiatric inpatient care. Studies show that the immediate time after discharge is an especially vulnerable period. To improve the prevention of suicide after discharge, Physicians need to know more about important risk factors. Previous suicidal behavior, and especially the diagnosis of depression, are associated with increased risk, but no previous studies have explored how recent suicidal behavior affects the risk for different groups of patients based on diagnoses. In this Swedish register-based study, sponsored by the Karolinska Institute and covering all discharges between 1973 and 2009, the researchers aimed to study how recent suicidal behavior in close proximity with hospitalization affects the risk of suicide immediately after discharge in patients with different psychiatric diagnoses. They found a distinct elevation of suicide risk in all diagnostic groups if a recent self-harm event had occurred, most notably among patients with psychotic disorders. Overall, the immediate risk of suicide after discharge was high, regardless of recent suicidal behavior. The authors conclude that these findings have relevance for clinical decisions about immediate aftercare, suicide prevention, and treatment in connection with discharge. This article is freely available online. 
please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. There is a knowledge gap between diagnosing a major depressive episode and selecting optimal antidepressant treatment for individual patients. This report from the Canadian Biomarker Integration Network in Depression aims to integrate clinical and biomarker data to identify treatment-responsive subgroups within major depressive disorder. As a precursor to exploring the role of neuroimaging and molecular biomarkers as predictors of response or remission, the authors examined early symptom reduction as a predictor of symptomatic and functional outcomes during treatment with S-citalopram. They also reported results of adding aripiprazole for individuals who have failed to respond after eight weeks. Their study was sponsored by the Ontario Brain Institute, with additional funding from the Canadian Institute of Health Research, Lundbeck, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Servier. The study was carried out across six Canadian ambulatory care centers and recruited 212 depressed outpatients. As expected, approximately 50% of participants responded to S-citalopram, and the majority maintained symptomatic response with improved functional response after 16 weeks. Remission rates increased from 31% at 8 weeks to 80% at 16 weeks. Over 50% of non-responders to escitalopram achieved response after 8 weeks of adjunctive aripiprazole. Early improvement after two weeks was a modest predictor of response status for both escitalopram monotherapy and adjunctive aripiprazole. Patient-reported outcomes followed a similar trend, albeit with lower rates of response and remission. Given the limited value of early clinical improvement to predict outcome, the authors conclude that integration of clinical and biological markers deserves further research. Are electronic prescribing alerts useful or simply annoying? A recent survey gathered the opinions of members of the American Society of Clinical Psychopharmacology on several aspects of these alerts, including how often they are inaccurate and how the clinician tended to proceed when presented with one. In an ASCP Corner article, Drs. Catherine Phillips and Leslie Citrome reflect on what the survey findings may mean. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. The natural course of prescription opioid use disorder has not been examined in longitudinal studies. To explore the issue, Weiss and colleagues first conducted the Prescription Opioid Addiction Treatment Study, the largest study of treatment for individuals dependent either primarily or exclusively on prescription opioids. They found that, as expected, those who chose to receive opioid agonist treatment had better outcomes. The only predictor of long-term outcomes in this trial was a history of any heroin use at baseline. Participants with this kind of history were more likely to have opioid dependence at month 42. Subsequently, to examine the association between opioid abstinence and psychosocial treatment received during the follow-up period, the researchers conducted a three-and-a-half-year follow-up study of participants in the trial. In this article, one of this month's CME offerings, the authors examined the natural history of treatment for prescription opioid use disorder 
and its association with opioid abstinence after completion of the randomized controlled treatment trial. Their work received funding support from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. In bivariate analysis, the authors showed that not only was agonist treatment associated with opioid abstinence, but mutual help attendance and outpatient counseling were as well. Multivariable logistic regression models confirm the association between opioid abstinence and both agonist treatment and mutual help attendance at months 18, 30, and 42. However, outpatient counseling was not associated with opioid abstinence in the adjusted models at any of the follow-up time points. The authors conclude that continued receipt of treatment, optimally opioid agonist treatment plus mutual help, is robustly associated with abstinence from illicit opioids. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the March-April Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. Treatment-resistant schizophrenia occurs in about 30% of those diagnosed with schizophrenia. The course of illness varies among patients, with some having treatment resistance at the first episode and others developing resistance over time. The heterogeneous course may indicate involvement of multiple neurobiological pathways underlying its pathophysiology. A long duration of untreated psychosis can be associated with poor prognosis, but early recognition of treatment-resistant schizophrenia may facilitate informed treatment decisions, shorten the duration of inadequately controlled illness, and improve long-term outcomes. However, no consistent clinical criteria currently exist for establishing the condition in a patient with schizophrenia. In June 2017, nine clinical experts in treatment-resistant schizophrenia with support from Lundbeck met to discuss its definition and identification, pathways to treatment resistance, current treatments, unmet needs, and disease burden. Findings from published studies were synthesized for each area and presented to the group for review and discussion. The experts agree that inadequate response to two different antipsychotic medications, each taken with adequate dose and duration with verified adherence, is required to confirm treatment-resistant schizophrenia. Each trial of at least six weeks' duration should include objective positive symptom measures to assess treatment response and to document medication adherence. Once treatment-resistant schizophrenia is established, Alternative or non-pharmacologic treatments should be considered. Early identification may help guide treatment decisions and reduce the overall burden of the disease on patients and caregivers. This article is freely available online. Please visit the March-April Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among youth worldwide. Prevention of suicidal behavior can be exercised at several levels of intervention. Although contact-enhancing and psychotherapeutic approaches seem promising, the adequate components and recommended length of interventions for recurring suicide attempt risk remain unclear. In this real-world study, partially funded by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, structural funds of the European Union and Spanish public funding agencies, researchers investigated whether prolonging contact maintenance and adding 
Either telephone calls or psychotherapeutic intervention is effective at lowering the risk of relapse after a suicide attempt. Using a sample of 1,492 subjects from three clinical settings in Spain, the researchers compared a priority appointment within seven days after discharge and two treatment alternatives, a six-month-long enhanced contact maintenance with telephone calls and an intensive two-month-long weekly psychotherapeutic treatment. Both treatment alternatives were comparable in lowering reattempt risk after a suicide attempt, and both were more effective than the single early visit with a 40% lower relapse risk in adjusted models. Results did not differ after stratification by age and sex. The authors conclude that the question of whether psychotherapy adds value to contact maintenance for suicidal behavior prevention remains partially unanswered and deserves further research. Risky sexual behaviors are significantly related to the risk of contracting sexually transmitted infections, or STIs. Evidence has shown that adolescents and young adults with bipolar disorders are more likely to have risky sexual behaviors, such as unprotected sex and sexual acts with intravenous drug users. In another CME offering for this month, the authors of this article examined data from the Taiwanese National Health Insurance Research Database of 26,028 adolescents and young adults with bipolar disorder and 104,112 individuals without bipolar disorder to analyze the risk of subsequent STIs between them. They found that bipolar disorder was an independent risk factor for contracting an STI, such as HIV, syphilis, genital warts, gonorrhea, and chlamydial infection. Adolescents and young adults with bipolar disorder and substance and or alcohol use disorders were at the highest risk of STI occurrence. Furthermore, the authors determined that medication treatment for bipolar disorder, that is mood stabilizers and atypical antipsychotics, would reduce this risk. Based on these findings, the authors recommend that clinical psychiatrists focus on helping patients with bipolar disorder reduce their frequency of risky sexual behaviors and related risk for STIs. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the March-April Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Lisdexamphetamine dimesylate has been shown to have efficacy for moderate to severe binge eating disorder, and it has FDA approval for this indication. It has been reported that this disorder is more common in women than in men, and that both gender and age may impact treatment response to pharmacotherapy. In post hoc analyses of two clinical trials funded by Shire, Kornstein and colleagues examined clinical characteristics and Lisdexamphetamine treatment response in adults with moderate to severe binge eating disorder based on gender and age. In the studies, adults were randomized to 12 weeks of either placebo or lisdexamphetamine at an optimized dose of 50 or 70 milligrams. The sample of more than 700 subjects included more women than men and roughly comparable numbers of participants older and younger than 40 years of age. Across subgroups, 63% to 75.5% 
had a body mass index of at least 30. At weeks 11 to 12, least squares mean treatment differences nominally favored lisdexamphetamine over placebo in all subgroups for changes in binge eating days per week. This finding was also reflected in scores on the Yale-Brown obsessive-compulsive scale modified for binge eating at week 12. Treatment with lisdexamphetamine was associated with higher frequencies of treatment-emergent adverse events than placebo and with increases in blood pressure and pulse. The authors conclude that participants exhibited comparable clinical characteristics and responses to dose-optimized lisdexamphetamine compared with placebo across genders and ages. Delirium is a highly prevalent and burdensome geriatric syndrome. Understanding of polypharmacy, five or more drugs, and specific drug classes are associated with delirium is crucial in order to implement prevention. In this study, the authors used data collected during Delirium Day, a multicenter delirium prevalence study including 4,133 older patients admitted to acute hospital wards in Italy in 2015 and 2016. Delirium was assessed according to the 4AT score. The overall prevalence of delirium was 23.5%. In the whole sample, prevalence of polypharmacy was higher in patients with delirium, but varied according to the clinical settings. After adjustment for age, sex, education, dementia diagnosis, and score on the Charlson Index, prevalence of polypharmacy was significantly associated with delirium only in patients admitted to surgical units, suggesting an overtreatment of delirium in those units. Insulin, antibiotics, antiepileptics, antipsychotics, and atypical antidepressants were directly associated with delirium whereas statins and angiotensin receptor blockers were inversely associated. Different hypotheses can be drawn from these findings, but final cause-relationship conclusions need to be explored in future longitudinal studies. Finally, a more powerful association between typical and atypical antipsychotics and delirium was found in individuals without dementia compared to those with dementia. This finding may underline the use of antipsychotics in treating other conditions, such as neuropsychiatric symptoms and depression, and that the association between dementia and delirium is present even in the absence of treatment with antipsychotic medications. Over the past 10 years, prescriptions of second-generation antipsychotics, or SGAs, have significantly increased in adolescents and young adults. However, the association between SGAs and metabolic disorders, especially type 2 diabetes mellitus, has been well established in the adult population. In this nationwide study from Taiwan, the authors followed over 91,000 adolescents and young adults who were exposed to SGAs and investigated the potential risk of their developing type 2 diabetes by comparing cumulative defined daily doses against a variety of demographic variables. The study found that independent of personal psychiatric disorders such as schizophrenia, affective disorder, and autism spectrum disorder, and comorbid metabolic disorders such as obesity and dyslipidemia, 
SGA exposure significantly increased the likelihood that adolescents and young adults would develop type 2 diabetes. These findings raise concerns about the use of SGAs in pediatric populations. The authors recommend that on the basis of these results, clinicians carefully monitor the metabolic conditions of these patients. The recent FDA approval of intranasal ketamine has sparked interest in ketamine's potential for treating severe depression. Could orally administered ketamine be a cost-effective and convenient alternative to other administration routes? In a two-part series, Dr. Andrade discusses dosing and pharmacological considerations, as well as current evidence and clinical experience relating to its use. The full text of these columns is freely available online. Please visit the March-April Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the March-April issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.